Hello and welcome back to the Comic Lyra podcast, the podcast that does deep dives into the best, worst and middest of comic books, graphic novels and sometimes mangas. I'm your host, the soon-to-be-known-as Comic Stan, and with me, as always, is my human co-host, it's Jamie. Hello there. Would you say human is applicable enough for you to be okay with that <laughs> use? How do you know? I mean, I suspected for a long time. Suspected what? You of being human. Have you? Yeah, I've seen you do human things, like uh, you've um, misplaced your keys before, or you've... Right, uh, and that's consistent. I never know where my keys are. <laughs> exactly, it's how very human of you. My keys are misplaced at all but the brief moments when I know where they are. And we're actively driving your car, and even then it's like, are they in the ignition? Yeah, I've definitely been driving my car and panicked that I, my keys aren't in my pocket. Which is another version of the, where are my glasses? Oh, they're on my head. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then I remember I was sat in my car with the ignition, with the key not in the ignition. And I thought, where do I normally put them when I'm in the car? Because I was like <laughs> eating lunch in the car or something and I didn't need to put them in the ignition. And I was like, oh, they go in the ignition. <laughs> <laughs> the keys go in the ignition. <laughs> that's, where, that's why I've never had to find a place for them in my car because they always have their place. So the, that's the adult version of That's why we do the training as a baby of like the square shape goes in the square <laughs> hole. It's like, this is how you know where your keys are when you're older. My lateral thinking was so good as a child, I realized that everything went in the square hole. That's a deep cut TikTok reference. Yeah, I think it is. I think yeah. it is, yeah. <laughs> for, for the older listeners who might not be aware what the square hole joke is. We don't have any older listeners. Uh, we we might. I don't. I haven't asked everyone's age, so I don't know. What, the if, convention? Yeah, but if you're older than Which a certain you, age... Which you, listener, weren't invited to, <laughs> yeah. and you're going to have to work out why. And if you're over a certain age, leave. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that. Older than us is old, but, young, yes. but younger than us is too young. So you have yes. to be in that sweet spot for us to think you're okay as a listener. One of the things that started to happen now, and it's it's worrying, Ryan, I don't like it, is that Gen Zers are making their way into my life through different channels. So like, you know, friendship groups that I'm in that aren't just like me and like you, people hmm. I've known for a long time. Some Gen Zers are starting to infiltrate those friendship groups. And now I'm like the old person in some of my friendship groups. Absolutely disgusting. It's fucking weird, man. We should probably like, build a wall, I reckon. I So I, I, I was, you know, kind of relatively well-dressed for me the other day. <laughs> and one of my friends looked at me and went, yeah, that's hard. And I was like, pardon? Sorry. And he went, it's hard as fuck, mate. And I was like, geezer, I'm wearing a tweed jacket. I don't look hard <laughs> at all. And he was like, no. The outfit goes hard. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. I am old. Thing is, goes hard was an older phrase, but I think it's come back was around. It? Yeah, because like back in like the, the late 90s, early noise, like music went hard. Like that was like, but that was a really? very specific. Yeah, I, I remember it being used, but I think it's then went away for a bit. And now it's kind of come back like someone's picked up an old thing like, oh, this is cool again. You know, it's. It's not even expressly retro, but I yeah. think that is what has happened, whether people realise or not. I've been trying to make a piece of slang from before we were born come back recently, which is referring to somebody as being natty. Not in the modern sense, where they just don't take any steroids. Yeah. Because let's face it, if anybody asserts to you that they're natty, they're definitely doing gear. Um, but like, And if they're an actor for an action <laughs> film and they've suddenly become... Uh, <laughs> muscled it you know <laughs> yes <laughs> despite their claims if chris hemsworth listens because let's face it this is kind of you we've know we've done thought so yeah, he might have like, he might it. have listened yeah 
just let us know what gear you're on, bro. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Private DM, obviously. Yeah. yeah, no. Well, no, fucking tweet it out. Like, we, we're all interested. About how we broke that story is like, come on, <laughs> come on, Chris. Like, all right, fine. <laughs> These two guys in England on this podcast. Somehow managed to crack the code <laughs> that everyone already knew and assumed, but just hadn't been heard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how are things, Ryan? Uh, you know, same old, same old. Yeah. Been reading comics. I mean, that's why we're, we're all here. I've not been. I mean, that is the the main point of the podcast, isn't it? Is me telling you about comics. Well, literally, yeah. And making you read them. Like, sometimes I feel as though I can get away without doing the reading. It's similar to when I was at university, whereby you could tell if somebody hadn't done the reading because they'd just be kind of trying to steer the conversation in tutorials to like this kind of very vague general area. And I, I do that here. I filibuster my own podcast sometimes when I'm like, I've not done enough of the reading. I'm just going to have to talk about COD. I mean, also, if you ever need to, just let me talk because, you know, I can just keep going on. Like, I don't want to do that to the listeners, Ryan. I mean, I can see your point, but also, you know, they're here now, so they're stuck with us. <laughs> They've downloaded like, the episode. It's too late now it's to turn around. It's on their phone. Exactly. How, do you, how do you even delete something from I'm in one of those house. things? <laughs> oh, that's weird, man. So, I mean, you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm in your house right now. So speaking of comics, June, the graphic novel we are here for. Should have mentioned that up top, but we got there in the end eventually. Yeah, but uh, June 2 is coming out soon. It will have come out by the time this episode comes out. I'm very excited for it because I saw the first one in cinema and it was great. Is there some core context that I don't have because I've not watched any June film? So for what we've read, this yeah. is a adaptation of the original novel or novels so right, so cool. we are getting a direct adaptation you don't need to have known anything else um there is a bit of preamble which i think is very interesting which i think you'll appreciate uh firstly the as i said we're doing this for the films the films directed by a favorite director of mine uh denise villeneuve um who beautiful is, pronunciation i noticed it's, that you needed to gesticulate to get that out yeah with the uh spicy meatball uh kind of hand <laughs> <laughs> is that's that what, what it's it? called well it's chef's kiss but you no, know it's, it's... Uh, no that the, the gesture you're making is what italians do when they're annoyed no but it's also like good though like is it, it or you know like the two fingers kind of the okay the finger okay. is just a bum hole but there days. is like a but there is like no it's like kind of the thumb to the middle finger and ring finger that's a bit of like a mm, like this is a good this is a spicy <laughs> meatball you know that one <laughs> which i will say if you're born in the 90s that's a mask reference that just stuck with a bunch of us for decades afterwards. To the extent that it features in Scott Pilgrim. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's transcended genres, if anything. But uh, Denise Villeneuve, I pronounced correctly because it's one of the few foreign names that I can pronounce correctly because well I heard it enough times. But also, I like his stuff. He did um, Blade Runner and uh, oh, Player 2049 right. and Arrival, which were two critically acclaimed films that did not do well financially. Is Arrival the Tom Hanks one? No, it's... Um, you know Jeremy I mean, you? Renner and someone else, but it's about aliens. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're thinking of the arrivals gate of the, was it the the airport that Tom Hanks is stuck in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's a great that film. <laughs> I can see the connection he's worked you out made. the quarters and he's just there with all the trolleys. Yeah. It's really good. No, I'm talking about these like <laughs> I mean high. I mean he's known for like was it high sci-fi? Is that the expression? Yeah. 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 So he, those kind of films didn't do well commercially, but they were loved enough that mm. he was given the Dune franchise and they were cool. like go with this and this one's actually the part one that came out a couple of years ago the one with actually, timothy chalamet yeah yeah he's the main on both but it actually did well financially so mm. everyone's like hyped for the second one which is everyone great. wants to look at timothy Fish- timothy chalamet because he's disgustingly pretty and zendaya in it is as well. zendaya in it zendaya's in well, it as that's well a fucking, yeah. I mean, you you would love the dune film i think i think if you like that kind of 
filmmaking where like it takes time and it's slow burn and yeah. it kind of builds up. I think you'll really enjoy them. I mean, my favourite films are mostly French and old. So, And Denise Villeneuve is famously <laughs> French, so... Famously French and if he will be old at some point. Because if he wasn't, he'd just be called Dennis. But <laughs> I assume. That's really tickled me. <laughs> That's the British. Oh, what? Dennis? What, no, no, it's Denise. What, how, how, how do... French people like Frank Frankize, Franklicize, Franklicize. I've made yeah. that up. If, yeah, I mean, it, it sounds cromulent. You know, it is a perfectly enough. cromulent word. Yes. How do French people pronounce your name? Rian, probably. Because I'm Jamie. Jamie. Hello, Jamie. Jamie. Well, that's, that's how Northerners say my yeah. name. You're it, Jamie. You're it, love. It loses a bit. Do of you want the, a par, Jamie? It loses a bit of the joie de vie when, Absolutely. <laughs> when you translate it <laughs> naturally. So yeah, the films are great. Highly recommend them. It very, it kind of influenced my reading of the of the graphic novel here. But uh, just to get across as well, the original novel, uh, Frank Herbert. Uh, written in the 60s yes uh there was an 80s film by david lynch which apparently is not great but is very interesting watch. i mean it's david lynch yeah with um carl mclaughlin in the main oh yeah. shit really yeah, as the timothy chalamet character so, so does timothy chalamet play the duke's son yes yeah the main character yeah. he'd be really paul. good at that yeah paul they paul. all have these great names and then so paul the thing about the names i'm getting ahead but the thing about the names is when you're reading most of the names i can't pronounce they either <laughs> either their names i can't pronounce or they're like very biblical names like yes. paul and others like that and then in the middle of all these You've got bloody Duncan Idaho. Like, what are you, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, doesn't make sense. Yeah, no, there's a lot of it that Duncan Idaho sounds like Indiana Jones's cousin. Like, yes, <laughs> his guess. cousin. Yeah, just like a weird, like a similar kind Imagine of. Imagine Thanksgiving at that house. Indiana kind of swans in, and he like, you know, gets the turkey from the kitchen with his whip, and he sits down, and then Grandma's like, "So, what have you been up to, Duncan?" It's like Indiana's like, I found the Lost Ark. And they're like, yeah, I know. So what's Duncan been doing? He joined the Freeman on the Harakey. That's uh, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? Well, yeah, I suppose. So Frank Herbert, as I mentioned, what I thought was interesting, which you would enjoy, is this adaptation, as well as a bunch of books, they've been written or adapted by one, just looking for notes in here, Brian Herbert, who is the son of Frank Herbert. Oh, okay, so that's kind of cool. Son not only adapted this uh, along with Kevin J. Anderson, uh, who I uh, just someone he adapts with. Yeah. But the main point is uh, they adapted this, the graphic novel, and they've been writing extra Dune books uh, okay. as part of. So he has continued his father's franchise. Don't know what the reception is, but you know we'll see as we go on. Uh, and also they were illustrated by Raoul Allen and Patricia Martin. So who did quite a good job. I thought a very good job. And yeah. And as I said, let's get into I mean, let's starting with the arting, obviously. I was yeah. gonna try and slip in a Okay, let's go. But, okay, let's go. But because we've already got the starting with the arting, I think I should put that before the preamble. So, yes. So, okay, let's go. Is it was written by uh, drawn by uh, and okay. then now we're starting with the arting. Yeah, so starting with the arting. As is customary. As is customary. What were your first impressions of the art? Very orange. <laughs> yep. I liked it. Um, so this is going to be one of those where I don't have a lot to say about the art. And so I think I have a similar relationship to the art here that you have with a lot of Marvel stuff, where the art was doing its job largely. 
um, for me, there's nothing exciting happening with the art, but also the story didn't initially make a whole lot of sense to me because we're just talking about all these different clans that are like doing this thing and there's like interplanetary stuff happening, I think. Hmm. Um, and so a lot of the time I was going back over the same speech bubbles going, who are they talking about? What's going on? Yeah. Um, and so the artwork in my reading of it, at least kind of became secondary because I was having to do quite a lot of work just to follow who the fuck everyone was and what the fuck was going on. Yes. Um, I noticed no jank. I actually noticed a little bit of jank. Where was uh, the jank, Ryan? So to call it jank might be strong. I'm so proud of it, you. Because it might just be... it might just be contextually appropriate but jank. i'll show you what i mean <laughs> contextually well, appropriate jank you'll see what i mean when i sh um show you so i noticed this face oh yeah okay yeah yeah, yeah. janky face but the re the, what i say about context is so there's a face where his lips are kind of pursed with his teeth showing a bit like a horse like the main it's character similar part. to spider-man in that scene where he's doing all the web yeah. goop <laughs> biting the bottom lip yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely but the contextually what i mean is he this the context of the scene is it's the bit where he's got his hand in a box and is basically torturing him yeah so for that i'm like can you really like face looks weird well considering what's happening to him that actually kind of makes sense and even though that face kind of looks weird everything's in the right place there yeah it's a weird face but one someone could make in real life yeah totally totally like the eyes are in the right place the pupils are going the right way everything's yeah. the right shape and size it was just an odd one it kind of took me out a little bit just to be like that's a weird face but then i was like well you know you can't judge someone you, if you took a photo of someone in real life you could probably catch a face like that you know when you pause a youtube video yes and then you and it's on someone's face and you go that's a weird face or you're watching somebody do a guitar solo oh, gee, well that the biting the bottom lip yeah Oh man, do you know about guitar faces, right? I mean, I've seen some guitar faces. Yeah, yeah it's like a, it's the, they the people pull mad faces when they're playing guitar solos. Yes, yeah, when they're hitting it, just like just right. Yeah, 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 totally. Like um, John Mayer put it best, where he says, "There's something about scrunching your face up," and he gestures with his arms. It's in his Hot Ones interview, right? Where he says, "They gets the note from here in square parentheses, gestures to his chest mm. to there, open arms pointing towards a fictitious audience." Yes, like it, and and like. I imagine that face though is one that because you know all artists use studies, right? Like, wait, if you if you're like, oh, I need to draw somebody in a contorted grimace, I'm probably gonna go on Google and look up some pictures of a contorted grimace, right? Yeah, I imagine there's not that many genuine photos of that particular face because it's an odd one to capture, and hmm. so like that would be a challenging study, I think, for most artists. And it again, it didn't take it out of that. Probably was my favorite passage of everything I read. Really, that's interesting. Yeah, because that that trial scene where they were like testing him to see if a male cat, you know, a male could do the thing that women do in this world. Yeah, they're part of a group that I've forgotten the name of, but it's kind of like a witch's coven, but like a yeah. space version. And it was very pregnant and poignant, and it was quite like a powerful scene. And mm. you know, his mum waiting outside, resisting the urge to stop the torture because she knows that the torture is important to his coming of age almost like i thought that was actually a really well written quite pivotal scene in in what i read of it yeah. you know it was all paced very well like i at no point did i feel it sped up or slowed down or anything i thought but it was, it was all... all paced quite slowly <laughs> but I, and i think that's because the book is probably paced that way and be it's literally the son of the author so somebody who's very familiar with the original text i think they probably did a, without having read the original book mm. i would go i would hazard a guess they've probably done a good job of 
matching the pace of the original uh, novel. Yeah, and it's interesting because this is maybe the second time that we have done a straight adaptation of a novel. Yep, yep. And obviously the last time we did it, I was really, really familiar with the novel and we both really didn't like the comic book. Whereas here, I'm not familiar with June at all. I've never read it. I've not seen any of the films. Um, I went into this... I kind of thought that June was Mad Max, if I'm being completely honest with you. I can see why you would think that, yeah. Espe- the, the fourth Mad Max, especially. I can see why you'd think that. Yeah, so in my head, June was like a post-apocalyptic thing. Yeah. And then I got to it, and it's like, oh no, this is fucking... This is like the... It's like it, it's, it's essentially, it's Star Wars before Star Wars. It's the Star Wars prequels, specifically. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit, It's yeah. lots of people in sci-fi-looking rooms yeah. having conversations about international diplomacy. But it's what this is. But it also <laughs> has some of the chosen one elements of the original trilogy. So you can see like yes. it has a bit of both as well. And one part I was going to get to, jumping ahead a little bit, was I liked how there was this front-facing political thriller but the then the more mystical chosen one stuff was f- up in front at the beginning, but then took a back seat. Yeah. So you had kind of enjoyed both types of this kind of genre, this fiction. Yeah, and admittedly, like I don't, I don't really know what opinions I've got on record with on the podcast about the Star Wars prequels. I think we've had a, quite a few. I think. I th- yeah, I think we've talked about them a lot, and on on revisiting them and thinking about them within the context of the Star Wars universe, the idea of a political drama set to the backdrop of like interstellar colonization colonization yeah is quite interesting actually and this Mm. does an interesting job it applies a feudal system yeah which again was you know i think it was an interesting choice for the 60s right when particularly um, this was an american writer i'm assuming i think so i will double check that two seconds american author yes American authors like playing with feudal ideas because they're a bit sexy to them because they're European and it's not part of their history. Yeah. The idea of, um, ne- was it not next of kin, but um, what's the word? Heirs. Heirs and stuff like that. Yeah. Someone who's continuing your legacy is. Heirs and dynasties and the kind of, you know. Bit more exotic to Americans, whereas here it's still happening. <laughs> like it just still exists. Yeah. I mean, we still have barons and dukes and earls and all that shit floating about. I mean, most of them are absolutely in poverty now and can barely afford to heat their stately homes but... and in bread <laughs> <laughs> that took me a moment what i imagined was a guy in a flat cap and shooting gear just like swathed in hovis i mean you <laughs> you are from norfolk you should have a very acute like reading of the word inbred i mean i am the acute reading of the word inbred sunshine you're the dictionary <laughs> definition <laughs> <laughs> you open the dictionary to IN and it's just me going, hey, right, boy. <laughs> <laughs> ah, close, close the book. <laughs> oh, no. The gene pool's so shallow, it's made the book wet. <laughs> it's like a swamp. <laughs> uh, that's Norfolk for anyone who was, who was interested. We, we used to have a joke that there was no lifeguard at the gene pool in Norfolk. <laughs> it, it, massive tangent. I'm going to be very quick with this. I'm, I'm watching my, um, my pro wrestling and there's some pro wrestlers who are from Norfolk. Right? Yes, there's a whole dynasty As, of them, isn't there? Yes. Well, only a couple have actually broke through and got famous. One of them has brought their brother and he's now a part of it. And she literally described him as Norfolk's most eligible bachelor. And all it reminded me of, this might be a deep cut, the Alan Partridge quote <laughs> where he's like, I wanted to watch America's strongest man. And so I was like, oh, I taped over it. So I was like, well, now you've got to deal with Norfolk's maddest man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Alan Partridge, man. 
beacon of Norwich, even though he's not from here. Yeah, he's from Matt. Steve Coogan's from fucking Manchester. But we still rolled out the red carpet for him at Anglia Square for his uh, for his film. Well, yeah. So for anybody who doesn't know, all for our American listeners, essentially, but anyone outside of Norfolk, I'd say. Well, no, because basically most of the film premieres happen in a big cinema in Leicester Square yes. in London, and when he announced he was making his film and they talked about the premiere he said anglia square not leicester square anglia square is this really rundown shithole it's it's magical it's a wonderful (laughs) place that i adore it's a brutalist structure built in the 60s with like a shopping complex in the middle of it and atop it is an old disused now disused cinema but that's that cinema is where i saw like lord of the rings and shit like that cinema is a very special place in my heart our generation has memories from it they had the darth uh, vader model figure life, yeah. life-size figure you've in there. just unlocked a memory from the 90s <laughs> that i forgot i had ryan that's wild yeah but that was the only bit of cinema decor that they had in the entire place other than the actual cinemas yeah and apparently my dad just before they closed went to go and watch a film there and one of the screens was so small he was intrigued enough to ask the person how big it was and it was a 72 inch screen jeez well, bear in mind when you, at home you'd have like a ten-inch TV back back in the like nineties, yeah. but a seventy-two-inch screen, like I have a cheap TV and it's forty. Yes, <laughs> it's not saying much these days. Like, people have bigger TVs than that in their houses now. Probably why they stopped using that yeah, one. Absolutely, yeah, absolute ripoff. Um, so back to the comic. Yes, um, with the art, I will say I the first there's a first page there's like a landscape of araki i think as i'm going to pronounce it well, araki right. is where they go yeah so of that because it's the dune planet essentially yeah. um that looked beautiful and then once you actually get into it it the the art does become a bit less contrasted a lot of people in rooms yes but i think what helps with that is is that in the early stages you're in you're on the uh house atreides is there their home planet yes and it's dark and grim there's lots of water which is useful but it's like there's a lot of cloud and it's dark and they're indoors a lot um and i think that juxtaposes really well to when we end up on araki because then it's orange everywhere and it's sand everywhere and i think that it's a good contrast for like it feels like you are hitting a a milestone in the story yeah like everything's changed with we're now where everything's going to happen so i like the the colors i think use that really well to indicate mm. like a change in the story um other than that like you said i don't have much to say about the art but that's because i was quite engrossed in the story mm. so, and we'll get into that and my whole you know having experienced it before and stuff but what i noticed was i stopped thinking about the art and i think that is its own compliment uh, yes i wasn't super conscious of it throughout if i'm mm. being honest with you so i think it did a good job of telling the story i think panel layout and stuff i felt easy to read and that's the one thing i did notice it was a lot of horizontal thirds so you're dividing the page into thirds horizontally and then you've yeah. got these long thin panels that scan across yeah that's interesting you don't see that very often yeah i think that was because they had to fit a lot of um the thought bubbles alongside like conversation so i think they need that extra space to like put it up or down uh either above or below the conversation it's definitely a stylistic choice that was made yeah um because it made it i mean it just scanned completely differently you were you were reading it across you were going down and then across as opposed to going across and then down if that makes sense yeah because you were scanning down the panel and then going across to the next horror you know the next column almost it was three columns a lot of it yeah and I thought that was really interesting. And I've, no, I don't think I've ever seen that before. 
Uh, well, we probably have, but maybe not registered it. Like, yeah. When we were reading it. Potentially, yeah. yeah. Although, but again, even if I have seen that before, I've seen it as like a one-off page where yeah. they've just needed to do that. Whereas here, it seemed to be whomever was laying this comic book out, that was what was appealing to their eyes mm. because they did it a lot. Yeah. And I think, again, I think that was for dialogue's sake. Or at least it was a choice in a way to lay out the dialogue. Yeah, potentially. I mean, it made some of the backdrops look interesting because instead of seeing a traditional landscape you're almost seeing a cross section up and down aren't you yeah i did really appreciate the some of the splash pages there weren't many but the few there were i thought were really good one yeah was, it wasn't very rich in them was it yeah but but again because they were so rare when they did come up it was they i thought they were really good like mm. there's one in space where they're going from planet to planet yeah and it's, it's an entire cot like a a royal convoy of spaceships yeah. and that looked amazing and then there's one right at the end which is not really a spoiler. I don't think if you know anything about Dune, you know there's sandworms. That's a big part of it. The last one of so we've only we've only read half of the first trade paperback. Yeah. Because it is quite dense. It is very dense. But I think it's given us a lot to talk about. Like we know what the style is and everything and how yeah, it's laid totally. out. But the last page of the half we got to, when I said to you to get to us big splash page of the sandworm first bursting out of the ground mm. i thought that was amazing yeah it, it was, was like good. really intricate detailed uh, this massive monster there's like lightning coming up as well which i think is like a, a a sand thing in in real science there's like i don't know lightning storms or something to do with deserts or something like that i'm I'm talking out my ass here i think it's something yeah, I've i'm intrigued in i'm intrigued as to what <laughs> something to do with like the friction of sand or something like that okay oh uh, that makes sense M- maybe but regardless it was a great splash panel yes. is what i'm saying so i think yeah that is pretty much all we can say about the art again i enjoyed it for the most part yeah um, i didn't dislike it at mm. all and in terms of the story and the main part the first thing i want to talk about is the dialogue because i thought it was yeah okay an interesting choice in that it was quite a stilted dialogue the opposite of naturalistic but I think this kind of setting really allows for that. It was almost a bit like Shakespearean, like it in remi- just how stilted it was. It remi- so for me, and again, this is very much just kind of my gut feeling about it. It reminded me of two things, and it kind of sat in the center of both of them, which is Patrick Stewart era Star Trek. Yep. And specifically, like the second or third season of Game of Thrones. Fair enough. <laughs> Where there's a lot of talk of lineage. Yeah. And different houses and who is who and, you know, who's plotting and who's scheming. But it's that quite dry science fiction stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's definitely, it's a drier sense because it is a comparably realistic, again, p- political thriller kind of thing of like, almost like succession-y in a way, but with mm. a bit more like actual murder and like planetary mining of resources and all this but yeah, I, I did appreciate it. It was a bit daunting at first, like when they're talking about the this coven group and whose lineage of who and, and all that. And it really drops you in. Yes, so, which I appreciate. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because I complain a lot about stuff. Way too much exposition, mm. this, that, and the other. This was too much the other way? Well, I don't know that it was too much the other way, but when I was first reading it, that was certainly my feeling. But again, you know, like... I don't necessarily always have the time to devote to these things. I'm not doing the most careful reading in the world of it. Um, uh, but it does drop you in. Yeah. It's, there's, there is almost zero exposition here. Yeah. And I, I, that definitely makes it 
feel like you're in the story more. Well, it certainly makes you feel like you're observing it. Yeah. But it's, in it, real time. Yeah. In like, media res. Like a, it, it makes it feel like a more real story because there's all this back stuff that you don't know and the characters aren't going to explain everything in every dialogue. Oh, yeah, you know, that coven that's existed for blah, 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 and exactly. do this and that. Like, no one's saying that to each other. I do think with the art, uh, one thing I missed off was the characters were all quite unique and yeah. different enough to tell apart. Yeah, I thought yeah, that was quite yeah, totally. good. Like they, and they all looked pretty good. Um, I certainly liked the character model. And again, I can't remember who he was now, but the big, bald bloke, like one of the scheming barons or whatever. You're talking about Baron Harkonnen. I yes, believe. I liked Baron Harkonnen's character model a lot. Yeah, he looked disgusting in a very appropriate kind of way. And then the guy who was teaching Paul. Paul's tutor. Yes, with the blonde hair. I think he was the only one with blonde hair, so that made him stick the out. The kind of white hair and the little goatee. Yeah. Like, he looked pretty good as well. He had fun dialogue as well, because everyone was else was, was quite very formal, as it was their characters, and then he was the one who was kind of like, ah, boy, maybe instead of practice fighting, we should, uh, I'll sing you a song, if that's yeah. more your thing, whatever. And he was like, this guy's a real, he's banter. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's banter in space. Top bants. <laughs> and, then he, and then he gets there, and they're like, oh, we need you to do this thing, but first, will you sing a song for everyone? And he's yeah. like, yeah, all right. Right. And at one point, he's, uh, the Duke is like, yeah, we need you to convince the locals to do something. And he's like, what How? What level of convincing? Do I, am I breaking legs? And the guy's like, no, 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 no. Just like... We need like, them to be willing. It's yeah, the yeah. miners, wasn't it? Yes. We like we like a, a... We want a good relationship with them. Yeah. I thought that whole aspect... Again, this is... It's a weird thing, what we're doing here. We're talking about... Was it a basically straight adaptation from a novel? So some of the stuff we're talking about is the novel that had to be adapted over. Mm. So some things we're talking about how they adapted it and other stuff we're essentially just talking about the source material well i imagine i mean obviously with that with neither of us having actually done the prep work to have read the novel mm. um we can't be sure <laughs> I'll, I'll say one big difference that i had from the film which is yeah. as close a thing as i can say in this regard the film does tighten up some of the plot by it does the big stuff like all mm. the big stuff that happens here happens in the film but it tightens up by having it gets rid of some characters and as other characters do more so yeah i mean that's standard adapting stuff from written word into film yeah the biggest difference i noticed was the uh duncan idaho character who's played by guy from game of thrones the Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa. Oh shit, Jason yeah. Momoa's in June. Duncan Idaho, yeah. That's oh fuck. That's really oh, can we so, just watch June instead, man? That I'll watch like, June with you again. It's that sounds like a fantastic. great time. Yeah. So June, um, in the June film, he plays Duncan Idaho, and the Duncan Idaho character is also the mentor character as well. So they right. give his mentor stuff to that character, and yeah. then instead of him coming along with them on the planet, he mentors him on their home planet, and then he goes ahead because he got to infiltrate the Freeman indigenous people so, okay, they, cool. so they combine yeah. that stuff so for me reading i'm kind of like oh that's interesting that this character this is a new character to me and they're doing all this stuff and then duncan idol comes on and he takes over from there i mean you get that a lot when you when yeah. you when you adapt novels for either tv or film like yeah it, we're like we're, we've talked a lot about we 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 over a beer the other day we talked a lot about radagast the brand didn't we yes well you told me about him <laughs> yeah he was excised from the lord of the rings books yeah um, yeah, and so you know that just happens, doesn't it? And I, and to be honest with you, I would be I, I would I would be upset if I was watching a film a film adaptation that was glutted with characters who are all doing these things and you couldn't follow it because you spend a lot more time with a book than you do a film. Yes, like you know, it would have taken you probably a week of reading sessions to sit and read the June novel, whereas the film dispenses with that story in more like two and a half hours, I imagine. Yeah, probably. Yeah, like you know, average runtime of a modern film. Yeah. I, interesting again bit of a small tangent but it is relevant i watched the film recently uh called the iron claw 
which is a biopic kind of film about a real pro wrestling family from the 70s, I believe. 70s, early 80s. I think you told me about this. It's a Basically, it's a tragedy. And for anyone who was already into wrestling, who knew the story, as soon as we heard there was a film coming, we were like, that's going to be fucking sad. But what's interesting is... So, spoilers for is the this Iron... the guy who died jumping off something? No, no, that's a separate tragedy. Right. <laughs> Completely separate. Um, the, spoilers for the Iron Claw, if you want to see it, highly recommend it. It's a great film. Um, basically, in this family, there's a bunch of brothers. There's four brothers and five brothers originally. One of them dies a kid. Yeah. But then you start with these four main ones. By the end, three of them have died. And, right. and yeah... And in the ways that they do are quite tragic, which again, even though you know that, it's still worth watching because for the story. I mean, a death, a death that you see coming is still tragic, right? It, well, the, it, it, the film is good because it plays in a way where it knows a lot of the audience know. So it yeah. plays in a way where it's like, you know what's coming, but we're going to still show it in a way where it's, it's, the sadness is still felt, yeah. which is quite good. What's interesting is in the real life, there was an extra brother who also died. And the filmmaker literally had said he had to take this brother out of the story because he felt that if he left it in, it would have been too tragic to be believable. <laughs> oh, mate. Yeah. yeah, I get it. And that's, imagine going to the family being like, you know, you have this other brother who died. We're not going to put him in because people won't believe that this much tragedy could happen to one family. Yeah. But so uh, the reason I bring that up is that the idea of adapting and even real life stuff and you have to condense it and like merge characters into one yeah. and things like that to make it more palatable. Um, with regards to the dialogue and the conversations, uh, in terms, I think this is the main point I can make about the adaptation, even without having read it. There's a lot of use of every character having thought bubbles or not yeah. thought bubbles, but like thought showing color-coded to each character so yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes it quite good really easy to follow yeah i think that was a necessary aspect because there's so much internal monologue from each character in the novel so was the book omniscient third person i don't know but i assume it must be based on how much of this in in how much of this in a monologue we are getting from each character that was popular at the time as well yeah so i think they really had to find a way to get all these little bits across because they're very important plot points yeah and the reason I'm getting into that is one thing I really enjoyed is you see this constant building of the behind the scenes plans machinations. Right. Yeah. 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 And I love how it's not just the, the plot takes place. And then at the end it's, haha, this person betrayed you. And it's like a big reveal. This one is it's, I thought it was really good example of, you know, the Hitchcock uh, quote about building suspense, the bomb under the table. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. For listeners who might not know, um, there's an Alfred Hitchcock thing. He's talking about how to build tension in a film. And he, the two examples he uses to illustrate a point is, imagine you're watching a scene. There's two people at a table. They're just talking, having coffee, whatever. And then the room blows up. And you watch that and you go, well, that was just weird. Then you, the same scene, but instead this time you show the bomb under the table and then the conversation. And that's just showing how easily you can create tension in the scene. I thought this was a great example of that because there's constant building of tension where there's a, a plot to assassinate someone. That plot is told to the audience. So we know it going forward. We know there's a betrayal going to happen. Then we see the betrayal kind of coming out into the open before it's meant to be revealed. You see the plans to distract characters yeah. like to try and scapegoat someone else and you see them reacting in real time and not going for the bait like you thought they would yeah. so with all this stuff again this is more credit to the original novel and i can see why it was so liked because i really got into this 
oh, they know. Oh, no, they know, they know. Yeah. Oh, no, they suspect that the correctly that this other party are doing this. And I really got into that. And that's when I was like kind of suckered into the page and uh, kind of tunnel visioned on it because I was just so engrossed in the story. And and again, it's a it's a really yeah, and, and it, it it managed that quite well, didn't it? I think it showed it, it paced it quite well, where each reveal was like appropriately timed. Yeah, like you each reveal from one party or one character, you had enough time to kind of sit with it and internalize it, and then it would be addressed and built on like in good time after that. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who's read quite a lot of fiction, um, I can often I often have like. Some novels will give me a sense that this writer was discovery writing, mm. where they're just writing a story and they're coming up with it page by page. And then other times you read a story and go, oh no, this was really meti- meticulously mapped out. This was the Charlie from Always Sunny board of names. Pepe Sylvia. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and that's what this story feels like, because it is yeah. quite well metered out. And there, and there is quite a lot of intricacies, isn't there? Mm. And especially with all this int- intricacy going on, and getting sucked into that, I then would have points where I'd remember, oh yeah, there's a chosen one subplot, which is actually really the main plot, but yeah. it's, it's pushed it back and you know it's going to come back. Like, I thought that was really well done. I mean, I definitely felt that the chosen one stuff was a subplot. But then I think it, it's intentionally meant to feel that way with all mm. this other stuff going on. And then that's going to feed into stuff later. Like, I, having seen the film and the other half of this trade paperback, because that was the whole film, I know it becomes more important as it goes on right okay um but then beyond that big stuff i liked a lot of the little details Mm. uh, which again more of the novel kind of stuff little things like they have shields and again i like this when i saw the original film um they have shields where if a high impact thing like a bullet or a quick knife stab it will block it but to get through that shield you have to go get right up to it and then slowly press yeah. in or like like a you know how a seatbelt works yeah, yeah, yeah i think it's like seatbelt jolt it doesn't go slowly it pulls and i think that's how those shields work and i thought that's great for it for the book the films and the comic because it gives this reason of like this is why they need to like sword fight close quarters and that's why you can't just shoot a character yeah. from like afar and that kind of stuff so i enjoyed those little details also, there's a Catholic Bible in it. Yeah, I did know a tiny one. <laughs> yes, tiny orange one specifically. But he read from it and it wasn't actually the Catholic Bible he was reading from, right? So it's what it Certainly is. Certainly not a passage I recognize. Yes. So what it is, I looked this up because I didn't okay, know cool, this. Okay, cool, 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 cool. So it turns out, interestingly enough, and this probably is revealed maybe in the books more or, or whatever, this is set in our universe, but it's 8,000 years into the yeah. future. So Earth no longer exists, but it did exist. Right, okay. And this Catholic Bible is actually more of a amalgamation of all religious beliefs from Earth. Yeah. But they've just kind of done it under whatever. Pushed it in. Yeah. And I think like his- historians looking at Earth just kind of pick like what the most common, I don't know if Catholicism is one, the, how big is a religion? I assume Islam is probably the biggest or widest one religion? of the big six yeah. it's one of the big but i think that word just happened to get discovered by historians and they they've just grouped all religion under the word catholicism yes and they've, they've gone like oh here's old earth's teachings and we put it in this catholic bible or whatever that's interesting yeah yeah fascinating isn't it that would have been an idea which i imagine would have really upset some people in america in the 1960s yeah but i think i reckon <laughs> i reckon this flew under the radar so hard that like I don't think anyone really well, gave a shit. Ha- do, you, do you know much about the Dune novel? Because I, I know nothing about it, right? Well, I'm going into this completely blind. So the one kind of reference I have, which I think is a good idea of like its popularity, when Star Wars was coming out, 
you had a section of of nerds or literary readers or whatever yeah. who were basically like this is dune so do you know what i mean like how most people think star wars started the space opera genre yeah you had a bunch of people going saying they've just ripped off dune right because, okay. and that's that you know but it was a smaller section that no one really cared you don't hear about that very much do you so so ironic because george lucas was ripping something off but it was an old japanese film but he might and then he might have looked at dune as well and gone oh here's how you frame it in space like it, yeah, to make I it more suppose. palatable. Because I know a bit about like early sci-fi, particularly American sci-fi in the mid twentieth century. Because mm. I read a bunch of it on an American literature course that I did when I was. Did um, you read the? Was it iRobot by Will Smith? I did. Yes. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. So I read iRobot. I read what the, is it? Some kind of our robot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I. Funnily enough, mate, I did read iRobot. Right. Yeah, and I read the um. Uh, structures trilogy. I forget what they're called now. But his big. He he had this trilogy. Um, these these three novels, um, foundations, the foundation series, and I read the Incredible Shrinking Man, and I read a bunch of like, you know, twentieth century sci fi, and a lot of it was pretty um earthbound. Right, there wasn't po- like the spacey stuff kind of happened post sixties after Apollo, really, because because I suppose you know space wasn't a massive part of the popular consciousness at the time i mean back then getting to the moon was like the biggest aspiration wasn't it i mean getting back there would be a pretty big a pretty big undertaking even now wouldn't Mm. it um and so i feel like this may have even been a bit ahead of its time in terms of like sci-fi fiction about space there wasn't that much of it from what i've read Mm. because then also in a similar comparison dune being thousands of years in the future star wars always opens with a long time ago in a galaxy far away yeah a long time ago we're so far removed from where we are yes. that it's you can't even comprehend like how far we are from Earth, but we are still in space in our space. Mm. I guess uh, weird to think the Star Wars could have taken place in our <laughs> could have taken place in our history, though we find like a lightsaber buried in a garden or something. <laughs> so like a <laughs> World War Two Roman mosaic. Yeah. yeah, someone looks in it when they turn on. Like, oh no, dude! What would you do if you had a lightsaber? I wouldn't touch it. I would not trust Mike. Would you trust yourself with the lightsaber? Fuck yeah. Absolutely not. Oh, if you dude. had one, I wouldn't be near you at all. Well, no, because I'd lightsaber you. That's no, I don't, not even on purpose. That's <laughs> the real right, thing. Look at my new, oh, fuck. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Could not trust a human being these days with a lightsaber. Like, the Jedi themselves require, like, such intricate training from basically birth just to not nick themselves when they're swinging it around. Yeah, when they're doing the Obi-Ani swing swing i mean it's a common swing i don't know if they popularized it themselves oh no people call it the obiani because right. they were the first they were the first, first ones on screen to, to do it yeah like but like all like the somersaults and flips they do with it like imagine uh, well, that's yoda and he's using the force yeah but what about with the high ground and all that that's all flipping and stuff isn't it <laughs> and they're not getting themselves when they're doing it <laughs> Well, Anakin didn't come out great from that one, mate. But when Obi <laughs> did it in pre in the Phantom Menace, yeah, he was no. fine. Yeah, but Obi was pretty good, man. Like Anakin was pretty good as well. Oh no, he had some old, flaws. But... Old Ben is the best Jedi. Let's be frank. Yeah, he barely moved. <laughs> like, look, old Ben is the best. There's, he, I will have no argument here. He didn't get the same retcon like Darth Vader did in Rogue One, where it's like, oh, that's why he's so formidable because he can yeah. actually like fuck people up in a hallway which was an awesome scene i mean yeah because i mean darth vader i mean darth vader had been david price who was a pretty slow moving creature yeah he was a big dude he didn't move very fast and And fair enough 
Yeah, and so I feel like the only way they could make him powerful was not to make him agile, but make him an immovable force. Yeah. Or but unstoppable they did, and force. They built on that in Rogue One, the hallway scene. Totally. Yeah. So back to the comic, uh, or graphic novel. I want to talk case. about Star Wars. <laughs> We're talking. We're talking about high Star Wars. This is this is the thinking man Star Wars. <laughs> I thought that was Star Trek. Yeah, I swear, in a way, yeah. But this is their similar thing: that colonization of planets and all that kind of stuff. I really liked the um, Duke's view of the indigenous people. I thought that was interesting. I think they balanced him well, where he wasn't. He is obviously like a wealthy person in a position of power, probably from birthright. But I like that they they kind of made him firm but fair. He wasn't so nice. It was unbelievable because we all know people who are rich and powerful are normally assholes. Particularly colonizers. Exactly. I've never met a colonizer that I've liked. Yeah. So rather than making him so nice and generous, it was unbelievable. I like that they made him a very pragmatic way of like, we have to get the indigenous people on our side because it's beneficial to us while we're here on this planet so he's, yeah. doing, he's observing their customs and he's he's when someone like addresses him wrong he's like all right come on now there's a teething period like let's let's allow some you know this rough grace period he wasn't benevolent but he yes. also wasn't an awful oligarch yeah but you don't get the sense that he's just like we need to be kind to everyone he's like we are here to do a job this will make the job much easier if yeah. we're just nice to everyone if we're just like you and he doesn't he doesn't whitewash it he's he's not there like i love you indigenous people he's like look we're here now let's make the best of it like i'll i'll do my part and if you do yours we can you know make meet in the middle work, kind of yeah. yeah yeah so i like that um what a reasonable colonizer he is I, I, and that's what i mean that is <laughs> that's the most believable level i yeah. think you can portray and that's yeah, any nicer and it'd be unbelievable that's, that's I see where you're point, coming yeah. from uh, Paul is an interesting one for like a, I think, again, they're kind of meeting this n- nice compromise where he's obviously a pampered heir to a throne in a sense, mm. but he's also that level where he's also been like hard trained to be very capable. So yeah. he has a bit of, he's not quite a spoiled brat, but he is still a bit like, yeah, I'm an, I'm a, a, a Atreus heir. And, I and desert- we see that when that drone thing comes into his room yes. and he handles it ably. And he knows what it is and he knows to stay still. He manages to catch it before it kills an innocent civilian, essentially. And I suppose what's interesting is that we know, and this is going back to what you were saying earlier, we know that actually he was meant to find that one. Yeah, a false plot. Yeah, he was meant to find it, but also how ably he dealt with it is also kind of really sets his character up. Because in some of those initial training scenes, I kind of go, oh, is he a bit useless? Mm. When he's sword fighting with his master, you know. And then you see him do that and you're like, oh no, he is very competent. Like he, despite being quite young, he's very competent. Yeah. So he feel he feels like he's been born into rich and fortune and silver spoon, but they've been like, we're not just going to let you sit around the house and not do anything. Like <laughs> you've got to learn how to fight and cult- culture and customs. And you need to be a good duke. Yeah, exactly. So I appreciated that. I liked, again, another little detail, which I love these kind of details in stuff like this. The fact that the mum has this... Not quite clairvoyance, but she's like a a, a kind of body reader, like body yes. language. She's like very. She absurd. can tell. She, from what I can tell, she can tell where somebody's. She can see everything that somebody's see everywhere that somebody's been through their body. She's right? a bit of a Sherlock Holmes, but that seems to be like a part of she's this coven. Bit of a Sherlock Holmes. She's a, yeah, she's not too much, but a little bit of a. She's yeah. not a clumsy metaphor for autism, mate. Come right. on, she's a bit of a. <laughs> Did you ever watch The Mentalist? No. All right, there's a TV show with a guy who was like a fake psychic, but it's because of cold reading people, and yes. then he solves crimes. But <clears> it's Darren like, Brand. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Like <laughs> you didn't, you didn't need to cough for that. That's actually, <laughs> it's very, actually accurate, yeah. very accurate. Yeah, very accurate. Yeah, 
Um, but yeah, I liked that there's a scene where th- she's talking to someone who we know is the traitor. So again, mm. bomb under the under the table thing. And he, we, what I liked cutting into his thoughts is he knows she's going to pick something up. Yes. That he, she, he knows, she knows that he's nervous. Yeah. So he has to give some truth to explain the nervousness away. Yes. But then also he accidentally uses her formal name. No, her informal name. So then he knows like, oh shit, I've given myself away a little bit. And even after all that and all that he's done to kind of cover his ass, even after all that, she goes, he's hiding something. So I like this, like, it's like a mental chess game of just how they are being around each other. That all of those conversations reminded me in their execution of the scene in the house, in the dairy farm in Inglorious Bastards. One of my favorite scenes of all time. Well, yeah, I mean, fantastic scene by Tarantino. But you know what I mean? Is that kind of conversation where, and and and, th- and this is sometimes played out really well, where you feel that two people are playing a game of conversational chess. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, I I love that realism, and it, it benefits a lot from every character having their internal monologue as well. Yes, so you see their front facing, like their actions, but you know their spoken word, and then their their hidden behind the scenes one as well. This wouldn't work from a single viewpoint. No, exactly. And I think that's when you pointed that earlier. It's like it, the novel must have been this way. Even though it has a very clear main character, this is quite. You don't see that very often. Well, I couldn't tell if Paul was the protagonist or if his mum was the protagonist. I kind of felt that they were both protagonists. Knowing what I know of how it goes, you're, I think Paul is meant to be, but I think the mum is like so close to sharing screen time and conversation i think yeah. she, she's up there yeah she was my favorite character i really liked her yeah i you you kind of have a little disdain when she allows her son to be tortured but it does still play it in a way where she you she gets across how important this is it's how important it is and also it felt less egregious because there was there's that everyone involved knew that there would be no long-lasting harm yeah except for paul but she knows her son doesn't know that Yes, and 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 that's in, and I suppose that's some element of psychological torture. But also, she knew she wasn't putting him in any real danger. Yeah. She knew that whatever the outcome of that, he would come out of it unscathed. Although, if he wasn't human, would he have come out of it unscathed? Apparently, he might have died. Because okay. this is the thing. So, and this is the thing that I don't understand. That maybe if I'd read more of it, I would understand. Or if I'd seen the film, why was there any question that he was human? So this is why I addressed you as human at the start, because yes. I, I think human must have a different connotation, which right. again, we, okay. we, and I'm just assuming that based on what we've both read. Um, but you've seen the film. Yeah, it's not, it's not, uh, I don't, they don't use the word human in the film. I don't right. think, I don't remember them using the but word But is human. that scene present in the film? Yeah, the scene is, it's, so how it does was it in the trailer. Out? What are they testing for there? Are they just testing to see if he is the, the thing, the chosen one? Yes, exactly, yeah. I think they took out the human thing probably because it's confusing for exactly yeah. that reason, as you said, yeah, everyone because everyone appears I, human. I was, and so I, I, when I finished reading what we'd read, mm. I scanned back through the rest of the, what I'd already read looking for other references to people being human and i found a couple but none of them really elucidated that situation for me yeah again this might be one of those things where there is just some exposition in the novel <laughs> i mean like there's a there, there, there is a it would have taken a paragraph yeah it? it also might be explained because we are again we wrote essentially we read a quarter of the novel essentially so it so it might be just explained further on yeah down totally. the line. But I can see why in the film adaptation they were like, let's take out this human stuff because it's just confusing and you can just use the chosen person stuff. And not it's the test I don't think is not even for being chosen one. It's to see if he's like them, the coven, 
but the problem is the coven apparently does seem to be mostly female. Yes. So well, they're coven. Exactly. <laughs> but even in this specific one, they talk about how they're annoyed. The coven is annoyed that she chose to have a son. And it sounds yes. it sounds like that old timey medieval like why woman haven't you birthed me a male heir like, as if they could do anything about her. But in here she's like yeah I, I was gonna have a daughter but then I chose to have a son instead. Like the Duke wanted it, you know? Yeah, and it makes sense that the Duke would want a male heir because it seems that there's some pretty standard primogeniture happening here. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff about him not marrying the mother of Paul. She's a she's literally a concubine. Like, well, that's no, she's his most treasured concubine. Exactly. <laughs> but then I like the attention to detail again, where later the Duke goes, I I love your mother and I would have made her my wife, but I had to keep myself available in case of like political marriage and that. And then there's a scene later where the mum is going to be has to be betrayed by the Duke and everyone else, and he's telling Paul this is for show for the other people. You need to tell her that I never suspected her. This is so we can weed out the traitor and make them think that they're being successful when they're not. So I like that additional details as well. Again, it's yeah. a very, it's probably a very well-written novel by judging by the adaptation. Well, yeah. I mean, this is it, isn't it? Like based on what I'm seeing here, because adapting, ad adapting fiction, like a novel, into any other medium, you're always going to have to leave stuff out. Like, written fiction is the most dense. Yes. It, it just by its very nature, is the most dense. You can fit more in. Um, there can be wider gaps between the moments of action. It's just, it's always going to be more dense than a graphic novel or a film. Based on what's here, the novel, I, I, would, I would agree with you that I imagine the novel's pretty good. Yeah, and quite dense as well. And it's making me think that this is probably a pretty good adaptation. I ordered a copy. Really? Based on off-reading the graphic novel? Yeah, I ordered a copy on Amazon this evening. Nice, there you go. <laughs> not a very good, not a very nice copy, I'll note, because you know I collect first editions. Couldn't yeah. afford a first Probably edition. Probably one that's been spitting or something, which would be appropriate for the story, because another bit I may know of, I liked the spitting scene with the with the Freeman. Oh, yeah. I, I thought that was really well done, like taking a, a, a well-known, obvious slight, spitting at someone, spitting at their feet... And then the and then immediately you go, have they just disrespected the Duke? And immediately Duncan Ida goes, oh no, water is so sparse, spitting is a sign of respect. Yeah. Because it's like you're giving your bodily fluid, you're willingly like giving some bodily fluid to pay respect to someone. Yeah. And I love that juxtaposition of like real world, bad thing, but very appropriate for the fictional setting contextually it makes a lot of sense although exactly. i never quite understood the water thing the, the thing so? well the thing i got is and again this is nitpicky and this is world building stuff and this is probably stuff that in the film would have been explained away really quickly or in a novel there would have just been a paragraph dedicated to it yep where are they getting their water from i think there's in the same way that there's some water in a desert like it's just very i just assumed it was as sparse as a desert right, like, okay. like an earth desert because even in an earth desert you still have like cactuses and cacti and plants and things like and and animals like reptiles and stuff so they are getting like they're built to survive on tiny amounts of water yeah. probably from like cacti and plants or, or killing animals that are somehow getting it from the ground and yeah. so i assume it's just that sparse 
And there's probably like very rare springs of water and stuff as well. Well, there's, there's a whole room dedicated to it in that house, isn't there? Yeah, that I think was not in the film. So that was a nice surprise for me. Like I enjoyed that. That was a fun moment as well. Yeah, especially the hidden messages from yes. the previous the previous owners of the property being like a hidden message was pretty cool as well. It was it was like Morse code indented on the leaf of yeah. a plant, which was cool. Initially, I just thought it was a bit of a metaphor for opulence and waste. Yeah. Because she, you know, we know that we're on a desert planet. She walks in and there is this subtropical terrarium, essentially, behind a locked door. And then, yeah, and then it all happens. And that's where she has the revelation about the danger and the murder plots and all this stuff. You know, it becomes a quite a pivotal plot point, doesn't it? Mm. And I was like, oh, that's quite cool that they've woven these two things together. Mm. I think what's interesting is it does reference, although slightly it does reference that there are villages of just what normal for lack of a better term normal people and then there's the indigenous freeman people yeah so there must be some people at these isolated springs of water there's one spring and a village is just built around it and then you've got the freemans who are like we'll just actually hang out in the middle of the desert we've built these suits we'll be fine so the suits yeah the suit the suits kind of you don't really see much of them, do you? No, I think that you'd see a lot more of them later. Right, like knowing, okay. I know generally where it goes after yeah. the halfway point that I've seen up to in the film. But yeah, it, that becomes a big plot point later. Um, but I think it does make for a cool get up. Like people in the desert, they've got these suits on them and they've got these robes and stuff just on top to kind of like, I assume, reflect the heat like yeah. people do in des- in high heat areas on Earth. Probably said that really uh, meteorologically correct. But um <laughs> Probably in, the, in the Middle East, yes, Arabs wear robes. Yes, like, white, white robes specifically. Yeah, long white robes, loose yeah. fitting, not cinched anywhere. Yeah, again, credit to the novel. I like the little detail of uh, Paul putting his on in a way that only Indigenous people do, and it's that, yes. and you, it's a very prophecy chosen one, kind of like, and he will know your ways as if they were his own, like that. Kind of, <laughs> and again, it's it's a little. <laughs> That was really good. <laughs> hey, vo- voice actor. You know. yeah. <laughs> it's the way you kind of like jimmied up to it and looked at me as you did it. Like, oh yeah, you, you got to get into the physical. Yeah, well, no, no, no and that's how acting works. Like, I totally understand what you were doing. It just amused me. I hunched over like a, like an old crone telling a prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. But um, he did the little thing. And I thought that was a nice little reminder of in all this political thriller stuff. It's like, here's that little prophecy subplot which is actually mm. the main plot but we've taken a back seat just for the meantime but here's a little reminder so i i liked all that stuff timothy chalamet fucking loves a chosen one story doesn't he well he looks the part doesn't he he look he he is literally again another wrestling term he's the baby face character who you can't help but root for yeah he's young idealistic like i hope he you know m- makes it and he's not so big and muscular that you go well obviously he'll be fine like, have you seen him as have you seen him as henry the fifth yet no, I've seen bits, I think. Oh, I've seen clips, but I haven't seen the whole Need film. Need to watch the clip. I've heard it's very good. It's, I mean, it's, it's Henry V. It's a Shakespeare play. Um, it's, a pre- it's a pretty faithful adaptation of a Shakespeare play. Yeah. It's I'm, fucking good. I mean, this is a pretty faithful adaptation of Dune, so I feel like we're getting our fill of high-quality writing. Yeah, I see. I mean, to, to talk about Timothy Chalamet for a minute, yeah. he's, he's having an interesting run of it. Like, he's taking really diverse roles at the moment. We're in a chalamet renaissance. Well, we are. He's just because I, mean, I saw him. It's kind of his start. Like, he's not come back to it. So, the first thing I saw him in was The King, which I loved. I thought he was amazing in it. And then I saw him in The French Dispatch. Yeah, I thought that was all right. Uh, it was pretty good. I, I think is I'm comparing it to The Grand Budapest Hotel, which yeah, is one of my favorite films of all time. And this is the thing, right? 
when I saw it, I was talking to people about it and they kept going, oh, well, it's not that good. Yeah. And I was like, that's only because you're contextualizing it within yeah. the context of the Grand Budapest Hotel. Watch it just as a film. It's fantastic. It's, it's still so really well good. made and entertaining. Really well made, really well scripted. Timothy Chalamet's performance in it is fucking flawless. Yeah. And then, I, I mean, every, people people have speaking about him really highly for this. Yeah. Yep. I hear that. I hear rumblings that his Wonka performance was all right. Yeah, I've heard that was pretty good. Like, I mean, I've not heard positive things about the film itself, from what I can tell. I don't even know. I'm not even sure if it's out yet. Uh, yeah, it came out a while ago. And I think it was, uh, most people just, it's fine. Like, it's fun enough. But apparently he was good in it. Yes. To be fair, the bar there, it's weird bar with Wonka, because you've got, um, who was the original one? Gene Wilder, one of the best film performances of all time. And then you've got Johnny Depp, who just absolutely butchered the role in a very um, Tim Burton kind of way, which just made him look creepy, I felt like. Well, and this is the thing. Jim Wilder's performance was accidentally creepy. Yeah, but in a good way. You like, don't know where it's going. Like, yeah. that's creepy as fuck, man. But he, his was like a hidden under the surface kind of thing, whereas Johnny Depp just looked wacky, weird, like well, the entire I think, time. I want to say there, there is an actor floating about who is related to Jim Wilder. Also, we've been mispronouncing Timothy Chalamet's name. How is it meant to be pronounced? Timothy. Oh, really? I've heard Timothy for most people. Yeah, most people anglicize his name. Um, because for, oh, fuck, my phone's just died. He's got your phone. Who are you trying to look up? Is Timothy Chalamet related to Jim Wilder? There is an actor go. There is an actor working at the moment who's like Jim Wilder's like grandson or something. I, I, part I don't me- think it's Tim- Timothy Chalamet. Well, just because Gene Wilder was American doesn't mean he didn't fuck a French woman, does it? Yeah, no. I, well, he might have. I'm just more saying he just didn't look like uh, like someone. Hang on. Gene Wilder grandson's like oh, the first Oh, no, one. no. It's, um, I'll tell you who it is. <laughs> it's the guy from the bear. Yeah, it's not. But that's the first result that's come up is people are asking if he is, but he's not apparently. No, it's um, the guy from the bear who's related to Gene Wilder. No, that's, that's the first result that's come up. Oh, is it? People ask, are, are Jeremy Allen White and Gene Wilder related? The uncanny resemblance explained. And then it just goes, no. Okay. <laughs> no, okay. they're not. As a clickbaity title would. So that might be the thread that I'm picking up on in my brain. We can just cut this whole bit out, mate. Nah, we'll leave it as a tangent. Not a very fun tangent, though. It's <laughs> who, not as good as the podcast, Ryan. Who might be related to who? <laughs> I mean, that is a very Norfolk tangent. <laughs> Do you know about the app in Iceland? App in Is it like check if you're related app? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the, the gene pool there is so shallow. It's like but, a swamp. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you don't get swamps in Iceland. It's more like a frozen puddle. Yes. Um, and, and that's the problem. It's not moved very far because the puddle is frozen. And so mm-hmm. there is an app. Apparently, there is an app you can use in Iceland when you start dating somebody, and it's highly recommended just to make sure, just to make sure you're not cousins. Well, ending on the topic of incest is probably appropriate <laughs> for. They probably had incest in the Dune universe, you know, probably keeping the bloodlines pure and all that. Well, works. I was going to say we're, we're seeing a royal thing going on here. Where there are royals, there is incest. That's just the fact of life. And we know, being British, we know that far too well. We know, we, yeah, we know all about royals here, sunshine. If you look to the royal family, the best looking ones, there's a dispute on who their actual parents are. That's, that's the bar. <laughs> the best looking ones are probably illegitimate. <laughs> that's how you know. <laughs> like, you know, Charles II. I'm aware of his work. Charles II of Spain, with his fucking chin. Sure. 
You don't. Um, that's fine. He was very <laughs> I do, inbred. but for the listeners, you know, explain. He was from the Habsburg Empire. He was very, very inbred. He was very funny looking. Right. <laughs> that's And that's the end of the story. Yeah, just Google it. Like, <laughs> just Google fucking inbred Habsburgs and you will see some fantastic portraits of these hideously ugly inbred kings and queens. Well, you heard it here first, folks. If you're looking for inbred, you don't have to travel all the way to Norfolk. I feel like inbred is one of those things that they're very rural areas in any Western society just adopts. Like, there's parts of America where, like, oh, they're all inbred down there. Like, oh, do you know that? You know the family who inbred so much that they went purple? Yeah, I saw that in, like, a, I think, like, a weird clickbait story. But, yeah, I saw the thing. And then there's that at home with the Whitakers, I think they're called. And this bloke has been going to visit them every few years, and they're just, like, horrifically inbred. Yeah. A, a case, a, what's it, a, a cautionary tale for why you shouldn't do that, essentially. I mean, I think we all kind of see, we all know it's wrong. Like, no, you know what I mean? Where are you going with this? None of us are looking at our siblings going, if only there weren't those damn rules against it. There's a, there's a comedian, Steve Hughes, uh, an yeah. Australian comedian, saw years and years ago, but he made a great point about it. He was in Norwich. And I think he had this, <laughs> bit, he, he had this bit for probably all parts of the UK where yeah. they claim this, but he was like, you, you people here claim that you're all inbred in these rural areas, but the next town is like an hour away. It's like, I'm from Australia. He's like, where's the nearest town? It's about 200 miles that way. It's like, all right, fuck your cousin then. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Which I is mean, a good point. The general rule of thumb is that cousins are okay. Uh, I'm not quite on board with the uh, fully on that. Uh, Genetically, thing. second cousins are sound. <laughs> I'm fine. I'll take your word no, for it. No, gen- genuinely, genetically speaking, second cousins are fine. Yeah, I think we've concluded both the comic and the incest talk as much as we can. Well, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy to keep chatting. How, how long have we been going for? Uh, we're now hitting now. We're coming up to hour 10. Okay. Probably a little less cut out. So, yeah, I it's, mean, it's, yeah, because there's been a lot of inbreeding talk yeah. for some reason. Are there any other topics you'd like to broach? No. I mean, I think the comic was interesting. As I've mm. said, I've bought a copy of the book, so I'm yeah. not necessarily going to finish the comic, but I am interested to have a copy of the book on my shelves. I mean, to be fair, the mark of a good adaptation is getting you interested in the source material. Um, yeah, totally. And like, I mean, I'm hoping that you're going to come around for a beer and watch the film with me at some point. Yeah, absolutely. I, I Yeah, absolutely. I need to see her again before the second part comes out, whenever that yeah, is. Yeah, and, and I mean, I suppose it's hard because I found it a bit impenetrable because I didn't have a fucking clue what was going on for the first yeah. 20 minutes, half an hour that I was reading it. Film does a lot better job of making it a bit more palatable while still making you feel like you're dropping into the middle of the mm. story. But I don't know that I necessarily want my stories to be made palatable. Like, the fact that I found it impenetrable, I don't know that that's necessarily a mark against it. Well, again, the biggest example is removing the the use of the word human. So, yes. like, little bits like that, I think, just make it a bit better while still retaining most of what makes it good. Yeah. They've not been, like, they've not uh, marveled it. MCU'd <laughs> it. Which I can say, being a fan, like, that is a that is a fair enough criticism. Would you even call yourself a fan of the MCU anymore? Yeah, I still love the films. I mean, the good ones. Are like are still uh, making them? Yeah, of course they are. Deadpool 3 is going gonna, is gonna to save the MCU, as oh, everyone said. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I kind of don't think of Deadpool as being MCU. Uh, uh, yeah, a lot of people don't. And that, that's the point of this film. Is and I to think kind of that was together. part of its charm, was that it did stand on its own. And it stood on its own so well. But now, now the intrigue is you've got this chaotic character who's not doesn't feel as rooted down in all the MCU bollocks. Yeah. That they've... The, shena- the, the MCU shenanigans, specifically... Mm. But now he's coming into it, not only having not been a part of it before, but also with his fourth wall breaking self-awareness. Yeah. So he's coming into all this. Um, and it's interesting. It's 
I think a lot of people are excited to see what his interactions are going to be like with Doctor Strange and Spider-Man and, you know, those kind of ones. Yeah, because I I think what would be really interesting, and I don't think we're going to get it, is to see Deadpool just kind of... Because where is where is Deadpool set? He does. He's not anywhere particular. Like, he's just everywhere. But yeah, he must be from a place. I mean, he's Canadian originally, but he doesn't, he doesn't operate in Canada. I love that he's just casually Canadian. As is Ryan Reynolds. Well, yeah, no, I know, mm. I know. But Ryan Reynolds isn't casual about being Canadian. <laughs> yeah. He's quite, he's quite full on <laughs> in every I, way. I did see a video. He was receiving a um, an award for like American. Uh, it was achievements in American filmmaking was like an award he was given. And Will Ferrell was um, speaking at the award, and he was like, "I need this award." Like, he's not even American. <laughs> he's Canadian. Give him the Canada Award. <laughs> Good video if you can find it. Um, I would, I would be excited to see him like deal like the avengers deal with wade wilson well that's that's again what most people i think are looking forward to do you think do you think he's going to rejuvenate it then because for me the mcu's been very stilted for a long time yeah the the problem is in all this rhetoric about mcu like the it's great again oh no it's bad again oh no it's great again the only thing that's going to rejuvenate it is consistent quality writing and uh, quality by the level of mcu quality so like you think of the it's not going to suddenly become citizen kane or 12 angry men or anything but just getting it back to the level of not even end game or infinity war because those were the culmination of 10 years of films yeah. and a shared universe but like your great ones like thor ragnarok and uh Iron captain man america too. films I, well, original Iron Man is even better than Iron Man Two, I would say. Iron Man Two still decent, but like the get back to and Guardians of the Galaxy and like get back to that quality and then go from there. Yeah. So the problem is, the, the every time a film comes out, if it's good, it's saved the MCU. If it's bad, the MCU's dead. So it's that extreme every time something comes out. I think people are falling into the trap of looking at it as a whole. Yes. Whereas actually, the kind of journey getting between these films is what's mm. fun about it. It's like it's like looking at like Bob Dylan's career. And so Bob Dylan's career went up and down a lot. Yeah. He was super popular in the 60s, but he was still making stuff in the 70s and 80s, but it wasn't great. And every once in a while, he'd come out with a hit, right? And zoomed out and looked at from a whole, you're like, oh, he's had this really hit or miss career. But then if you actually dig into it, you're like, oh no, there's these gems and it's really amazing that he's kind of had this journey. And that's what the MCU is doing yeah. at the moment. I think the problem is the level of consistency for like the first 10 years was a lot closer. So back then... The worst MCU film back then considered was Thor The Dark World. Yeah. Now, by the recent bombs that we've had, uh, commercially and critically, Thor Dark World is just like an okay film. But So by comparison back then, it's like, don't talk about Thor The Dark World. And then when we had the Marvels and uh, trying to think of ones that, like Secret Invasion was horrifically bad. See, I've not seen a lot of them, right? And good to you, because now you have a better, you still hold a better view of the MCU overall, because you haven't seen the bombs. Yeah, I remember there was a point during the pandemic where I was alone in a library, running a library. <laughs> alone? <laughs> yeah, 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 because it was the pandemic, and, yeah. you know, people still needed books delivered, like, people still had to fucking read and stuff. And so I was in this library that I managed alone a lot. Um, just doing stuff, doing busy work, basically. And so I spent a lot of it. I discovered that my computer and all my all my shit was really locked down there. Like I couldn't have a phone there for reasons and stuff like that. All I had was the DVD collection in the library and the disk drive on my computer to keep me company right. while I was alone in this library eight hours a day during the apocalypse. So I watched a lot of the MCU up to that point then. Yep. Um, but we both we mostly had like the OGs, the big hitters. So I watched the third first few Iron Man films. They're great. I watched the early Thor stuff. Sure. I watched the early Cap stuff. Yep, Captain America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and it was all like okay it was mm. all pretty good Cap- one of my favorite captain america films is the winter soldier yeah the winter soldier was the standout yes i think for me the standouts were the first two iron man films and the winter soldier yeah they were the the gems and the first guardians film was around that time as well yeah which i liked i don't i, do, I don't i think the thing that interested me most about it was the music is what got talked about a lot in that film. Like yeah. the music was kind of a character in the film and I was listening to it and I was like, these are some great, you know, rock and rock tunes from the seventies. And there's some, you know, gems in here, but I think they could have made the music tell the story a bit more. And I think for a film that had the music so closely woven into it, it wasn't strong enough. I think it was just, it, it was just meant to represent the time at which Star-Lord left Earth. Yeah, so, and, and it totally did that, didn't it? Yeah. Like, I got, you know, the feeling of the 70s. Yeah. And then in the later Guardians, he gets a gift, I think, for Christmas. It's a second tape, isn't it? No. So, yeah, in the second film, he gets a second. So, he at the end of the first one, he opens a gift from his mum that he never touched because he was too, too painful to open. And he finally opens it, and it's a second tape. So, he's got this extra tape of music. Either before the third one, I think there was a Christmas special before the third one, or it was in Infinity War Endgame around that time. Uh, one of the other ones, one of the other Guardians gives him a gift, and it's it's the most, po- it, apparently it's the most popular uh, music player on Earth, and he opens it and it's a Zoom. And, <laughs> but it's a Zoom loaded with a bunch of more music, so yeah, then yeah. he has a, like a, a even bigger library of music now to listen to, so... But yeah, fun little quirk. But one of the interesting takes I heard about the MCU was um, the idea that, you know, people go on about superhero fatigue. And a lot of people yeah. are comparing the superhero genre to the Western genre, which was We've big for a while. about this before, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, and then dropped. But the take I heard, which really contextualizes it well, is there isn't superhero fatigue. There's bad superhero film fatigue. And the way you know that is because when Guardians 3 came out, that superhero fatigue talk had been going on for a while. And then Guardians 3 did really well. Like it was great film. Everyone loved it. And it did really well commercially. So that proved it's not fatigue with the genre. It's fatigue with bad films in the genre. And the two Spider-Verse films were fantastic. Yes. And they're kind of considered like a bit outside because, you know, they're being animated and not live action. Yeah. But it just reinforces they are superhero films. And if any film is just good, people will go see it. So I think now superhero is a genre that is kind of here to stay. Like it's gonna, they're gonna keep remaking them. They're gonna keep revisiting these characters. But the difference maker is gonna be if they're good, great, and if they're not, then you panic. Like that's just gonna be the thing going on from now on. Miss Marvel's out now, isn't it? Uh, the Marvels is the film with Miss Marvel in it. Was it any good? <sighs> no. And Did you is, see it? Yeah, I saw it, and it's my problem with it was it had. I'm I'm probably going to make a video about this soon once I'm kind of okay. set up. But the, the, it has odd priorities as a film, and that yeah. sounds like a weird thing to say because I've not heard anyone else talk about this issue. It may I I I think I know what you're about to say though. So when I saw it, there's some prime examples of what the issue is. So there's one scene where the three main characters who are having some issues in between them, as is you know the arc of the story of their mm. relationship. They crash after failing, essentially, in a part. So it's that kind of darkest night part of the story. And then they talk out and then they get on the same page and they go on, right? Standard part of this kind of story. Yeah. This conversation takes about a minute, two minutes. Right. Where okay. they go, I'm upset about this. It's like, well, I'm sorry then. Like, all right, fine. <laughs> we're, we're, we're friends again. So that is an issue. But compared to sections where they devote a lot more time to, at one point, they go to a 
planet where everyone sings and that's yeah. the joke and Ms. Ma- uh, captain marvel didn't want to go and then we when they get there they realize why because you have to sing while you're there and stuff right they spend a lot of time to the singing dance number essentially <laughs> there's a scene where they're trying to catch a bunch of alien cats to get to evacuate people <laughs> off a space station and again sounds w- awful but the thing is with that scene funny scene i enjoyed it when it was happening but then at the end when i was you should have used that time to the character arc and development parts, yeah. which you just breeze through really quickly. There's one scene where Ms. Marvel's family are in an escape pod and they're crashing to Earth. And that's a bit of like, you know, this normal humdrum human family are like, oh my God, we're crashing from space and this is crazy. And, you know, that kind of thing. Again, and um, Nick Fury's with them and he's trying to like calm them down and that kind of stuff. That gets way more time than it needed to devote to it. You could have cut that out entirely and just went, yeah. they got an escape pod, they got to Earth. It's great. If the if the rest of the film was great, put it in. A little bit of extra, fine. But because they cut out these other parts, that's why I'm and saying the priority. And did it feel like they'd, well. they'd shot those parts and then cut them? Yeah. Just, did it feel that way? I Well, the conversation happened so quickly, so it feels, I don't know, maybe they cut it. Like, we'll never know. That's the problem. But yeah, that's what I mean. They devoted way too much time to like this, the fun, casual joking parts but they didn't do enough to the actual like story which would have actually invigorated another thing as well is there's there's a weird order of reveal of some parts so in the film captain marvel destroys the supreme intelligence of the kree which is a whole space thing um but they show that later on after this villain it turns out that's their motivation right but because they reveal so late on it doesn't it doesn't strike as well whereas if they showed that at the beginning they could have shown captain marvel doing this thing thinking i've done this good thing and then later in the film the reveal is you know that thing you did at the beginning you thought was good well you've just created the the enemy that's how you've created the antagonist yeah. like it's your fault that all the bad stuff is happening that order of events would have made it a lot more interesting but then instead we got the, the antagonist why are you so evil it's like well you did this thing that we're now showing for right, the first time it's like okay. uh, like that they didn't show the bomb under the table yes exactly <laughs> yeah they they just exploded later on and everyone went oh Chekhov's great. gun turned up in the third act and instantly got let off without be yes without being shown beforehand yeah. so yeah i think that's the best way i can describe it so yeah i mean it's one of those things that I would quite like for the Marvel, the MCU, to just go away for a bit. Oh, yeah, it won't, but I can see your point. Well, no, because they've made so much money. To be fair, the only Marvel film that's coming out this year is Deadpool. That's the yeah. only MCU film coming out, because they did. They are now slowing down because of the negative reactions, and they, they were churning them out too quickly. And yeah, not... I mean, even Disney doesn't have an infinite well of money. Yeah, they were doing quantity over quality, essentially, and now, now they're pulling back. So maybe it'll be better for now. They have to really pick things up, because, as I've mentioned before... James Gunn is helming the DC rebirth of films. I'm interesting because DC films have never really landed. Like I know, I know that there's been some great Batman films, Hmm. but in terms of like a cinematic universe, they've been trying for a decade to get one off the ground and it's just never really happened for them. Yeah. And you know exactly why the, the phrase I heard, which encompasses as well is everyone wants an MCU universe, but no one wants to make Iron Man. And yeah. that's, that was the DC. They just wanted it way too quickly and it just fell apart because they didn't build it. Yeah, and, and I suppose Iron Man was a little loved superhero when they did that. Like he was the, Barely bottom, known. Of the bottom of the barrel yeah. for, for Marvel. The Avengers were literally just, who have we got which we're not doing anything with? Yeah, right, totally. we'll put them in a team and you know do stuff with them. Yeah. And now they're the most famous characters of the genre now, along with the you know staples like X-Men and Spider-Man. I mean, I think film study students in 20 years will have to do a module on the MCU. 
you know, like in in the way that film study students, you know, you like you have to you have to watch Taxi Driver and Citizen Kane and The Godfather, and you have to watch all these seminal films. Mm. 15, 20 years time, it'll be you can't really understand cinema in the two thousands without having an understanding of what the MCU achieved. Yeah, exactly. I think it's going to be uh, the problem is it's not going to stop, and then you look at it when it's all done and finished, it's just going to keep going on and on. Yeah, and I suppose that's the way that's the way of things now, and I think that's what makes things like Star Wars so special is that it just stopped for twenty years. Yeah, but it's now hap- it's now going to happen more now than ever before. And and yeah, and and lo- looking looking at the difference between Star Wars in the seventies and eighties and now. Like, we got a trill, and 20 years later, we got another trill, and then 20 years later, Disney got the rights and just made all yeah. at once. And now it's Star Wars non-stop all the time. Yeah, and, and, and again, Star Wars no longer feels special. Yeah, I'll agree with you there. Like, I remember when the third trilogy came out, even though those films were whatever they were, and again, I think new Star Wars stuff takes 10 years to age. And it takes a little while for people to come back around to it. People are only just coming back around to the prequels and being like, well, they're kind of okay for what they were. Yeah, it just doesn't feel special anymore, and that and that might that might be the problem with the MCU is that it just stopped feeling special. Yeah, I mean they peaked with Infinity War and Endgame. Like that's that's mm. a pretty basic take because everyone saw it when it happened. Yeah. Even when it was happening and it was great, everyone was going like, "They're going to be hard to keep this quality up afterwards." Because yeah. it was culmination of ten years of films and all that. But uh, yeah, if you want if you want a good example of quality being picked up after decades, go uh, original Blade Runner and Blade Runner twenty forty nine. That was directed by Denise Villeneuve. Coming back to Dune, I brought it back round. Oh, we're done. <laughs> I was just thinking. I think we've exhausted um, MCU talk without going into like talk that's already happened and out there and stuff. I was having fun. I mean, we are having fun, but also <laughs> we're a minute, we're hour twenty, and I have to edit this. So, <laughs> so thank you for listening. I've had a wonderful time making this episode. I hope you've had a wonderful time listening to it. If you'd like to leave a review anything mean just whatever you want to say whatever is on your mind man with five stars attached to it and i'll probably read it out because i get a bit excitable absolutely we've had a bunch of comments on the latest shorts so at some point we can we go have, through those and get them we? Yeah, a lot of fun ones um yeah because you guys i don't know where you guys are but you have been pushing those shorts like something has happened algorithmically with those shorts of finding people and it make, brings me so much joy the way i it looked at it was we're finally getting the respect we deserve don't from say the that algorithm. out loud don't <laughs> say that out loud <laughs> fucking hell that's not an attractive personality trait we'll finally be paid the respect that we deserve <laughs> gotta say it from your chest if you want to send us an email <laughs> you can do so at comicliterate.gmail.com and next week we're talking about, we're actually going to do avatar the last airbender or we might not do it and just keep that as a running bit where we say yeah. we're going to do it but we, won't, <laughs> but we probably will do it next week so thank you for listening alan moore and good night thank you goodbye <laughs> <laughs>